Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verily, excuse me, very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whosoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant also, um, another example, uh, another translation of that last part would be, um, whoever serves me must follow me, and wherever that wherever I am, they may be also, right? Um, so, uh, a couple quick things as we get into the the um, the meat of it today. First of all, just as a reminder, we'll be doing Q and A at the end of this. So, take notes, take thoughts, take uh, mental pictures. So the, the thing that's interesting in this morning's text um, is, to me, is I almost missed it. I almost skipped past it somehow. Because in the, in the gospel telling, in John's telling, this seems insignificant. If you're looking at it in the, um, it doesn't seem insignificant to you that's just in, you know, boldface on the wall. But as you're reading it in your Bible, it's just a little blurry. You've had Lazarus, you've had Mary, you've had um, the chief priestess. I mean, this, it's, it's been like this big stuff, and this is just at the close of, of chapter 12, and it just seems pretty insignificant. Like, it's just kind of hanging there, you just move on past it. I mean, it literally is this much in your, li- in your text of your Bible, just not even that little blur. And so what uh, immediately I noticed is that I almost missed it. And it could be perceived as insignificant within the gospel, even within the text of this chapter. You just don't see it as this important. But I would like us to focus on two primary questions. The first question is, are the Greeks symbolic of some greater movement? So in this story, remember in the Bible, like good literature, the details that you have matter, and the details that you don't have matter. So we have to pay attention to what's there, and the, 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 there's something to this. So the first question that we're going to have two questions that I would hope uh, I have five answers for. Um, you should have a few questions that you'd like. Um, but the first question is, are the Greeks symbolic of something else? And number two... Why does Jesus answer with this elusive story about movement? 
those are the two things I want to start with. So to begin, we need to talk about the Greeks. So in this story, they it says that this unidentified group of Greeks come to Jesus. Now, if you remember at this point in the text, they're back in Jerusalem. They had left Jerusalem because they, they ran after the, the, the whole Feast of Tabernacles debacle. Right? So Feast of Tabernacles is happening. You have the woman caught dropping the adultery. You have that whole thing. They pick up stones to throw at Jesus. He turns over the tables and are you going to throw at who? Run off. Right? Get out of town. And so then Lazarus uh, is dying and they send word to Jesus to come to, to Bethany. We need you to heal the one that we love. And he does this, but he does this not without the disciples telling him, Please don't. If we go back to Jerusalem, we'll get killed. And so he does it anyway. He goes back to Jerusalem. He heals Lazarus. And now all of the Jewish people, because it's Passover, and we talked about what that meant last week. At Passover, all of the Jews, the city swells from 30,000 to some people say almost 2 million people to worship him. So all of these people, because Jesus has been ministering in rural country areas out in the out in the wilderness, now he's taking the crusade to New York City. And he's taking it to New York City on New Year's Eve night. It's packed. Everybody's there. So all of these people who've traveled from all the other countries around the world to disperse Jews are there, and they don't know who Jesus is. So now Jesus raises a dead guy, and everybody knows Jesus. Remember the close of the Lazarus story in John's text is the religious leaders saying, now there's nothing we can do for you. So the Greeks are there, and, and to me this is very specific. John's highlighted that there must be something for somebody. These unnamed Greeks come to the disciples Andrew and Philip, and the response of Andrew and Philip seem to illuminate to us something that's happening. Notice they come to Andrew and say, we'd like to see Jesus. Seems to perplex. Does Andrew just say, oh yeah, come on in? No. He goes, uh, stay there. the next disciple that he could find, which is Philip. Have you ever done any, have you had this happen before, right? Some Something happens, somebody comes to you with a concern, like you're at work and, and there's somebody who is, you know, flying off the handle and you're just working away, the person closest to the one flying off the handle is presented with this and the first thing they do is go, uh, and they walk to you and are like, hey, this is going on. And the first thing you want to say is, what do you want me to do about it? Right? I mean, we've all had those situations, whatever it might be. Like, all of a sudden, it is now your problem at this point. So you can kind of sympathize with Philip. But this is what's happening, and it tells us something. It tells us something. So Andrew goes to Philip, and it makes it clear that there's something that's happening. The Greeks probably had never heard of Jesus before Lazarus. He 
sweet people that probably these were not Jews at this time. In fact, the word for Greek says it's Gentiles, non-Jews. So these people had come in because as you knew, when there's a party going on in Jerusalem, it's like, hey, where are we going clubbing this weekend? Well, there's a Passover in Jerusalem. You want to go check it out? Right? And so everybody comes into Jerusalem. It wasn't just Jews that were gathered there to worship, but a lot of people would come from uh, auxiliary areas and see what was going on. So these Greeks are there, and the Greeks are very, very, very spiritual people. And the Greeks hear that there's this guy that raised a dead guy from the, from the grave, and he rode into town on a donkey. Greeks know about Greek mythology, and so they're going, there's this guy's deity. We want to go see him. And so they're very, Peter and Philip are very uncomfortable. Why are Andrew and Philip uncomfortable? Because they are Jews. They're not Jews. These guys are Gentiles. That's why they're uncomfortable. You see, these guys are not part of God's holy chosen nation. And so they want to see Jesus, and Andrew and Philip are torn because in that moment, they're doing lots of things. See, what happens, at least in my experience, if you're like me, maybe you're not like me, because it's not helpful. Uh, but what happens to me oftentimes is I can learn something new that I believe and agree with, but oftentimes the, the next time I'm faced with a situation I still oftentimes default back to the way I thought before. So like, as an example, um, I, I, I'll give a Christian spiritual example, right? So we've learned a lot about how like probably the way Luke taught about like the Roman jailers, about how when you're leading, like if somebody decides they want to follow Jesus, you're probably not sitting with them doing a sinner's prayer sermon necessarily right you may be not doing you may not do it exactly like that but i would think for the sailors that shortly after we had those discussions and we learned about that it's like i still think i have to follow jesus it's not been that many years since i thought the way it was that don't make too much sense and then that next monday when you're at work and somebody comes up to you and says hey i want to say it's kind of hard to say okay with every head bowed and every eye closed you see that thing right there it's what we do isn't it it's just what we do. We are so, because that thing is programmed into us and it's our default. So it requires for us to stop and think because the new way of thinking hasn't become a cellular anymore. It hasn't become the reprogramming. It hasn't become the default reaction. Cruise control isn't there yet. Is that okay? I mean, I, am I picking on you? I, I feel like I might be fair here. It's just what we do. It's not wrong. It's the way I think. Um, and it's the same reason why, you know, um, you get it. What's happening is they've been with Jesus and they saw him taking the first step in the water. They saw him go to the man in the garden lands. They saw him go out to people who were not Jews and tell the disciples these people are in. But they're presented now with something, 
and there's this wrestling just like we do where they're going they're presented now with the Greeks and they go uh hang on just a minute and probably like we do have you ever I, I've I've had this happen a lot it's funny because it was fine but it just happened so I've been talking with people before um, uh, nobody here but I've, I've been talking with people before and um, <laughs> there's the conversation about kind of what the Lord's doing and what's happening and what's being said and where God's taking it. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, because we don't believe that, right? Right? Because we don't believe that anymore, right? Wait, right? We don't believe that, right? Is that right or no? Do we believe that? We've done that. Well, I've done that. So my point is, that's what Andrew's doing when he goes and gets Philip. These guys keep going, yeah, like these guys are in. Wait, wait. They, they all, like, the Greeks too, right? So he goes to Philip, and you can imagine the conversation. We don't know what's said, but you can imagine. I'm, I, it's like me going back to Doug and being like, all right, Doug, I know we've been talking about having to love people, but there's some really weird people that just walked in the church. What should we do about it? We, we're supposed to love them too, right? I know we've said that we're inclusive, but there's um, uh, a gay couple that wants to join the church. We, we've, we've, we've said that that's – get it? So it's not wrong. I can sympathize, but they're looking for some solidarity, okay? And they don't want to go ask Jesus, right? You don't want to ask Jesus. You want to ask, like, you know, hey, uh, so cool. Hey, before I go get Jesus, I don't want to get in trouble either way. I haven't talked to Jesus about that whole calling down fire from heaven to destroy the world thing either before. So I, I just want to be clear. That's what's happening. And so you can see this back and forth. And there's this debate uh, that, that, that happens if you look at the scholarship regarding the nature of the Greeks. Some people say, well, they could be the Jewish Greeks. I, I just don't believe that. The word that's used, uh, the, 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 all of the commentary on this talks about these are Gentiles. Jewish people, and of course, it is beat into you as a Jewish person at this point that God's chosen people are Jews. Period. I remember they just left the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple says that you can't go seek any priest from it if you're not a Jew. If you do, your death is your fault because they would behead them during worship. Like, they would literally come in and begin to stone them while they were worshiping at the, at the temple in Mount. So this is deeply cultural. So to move into this further question, uh, let's move on to the second question. So both John and Jesus seem completely unimpressed with the idea of continuity in the church. I mean, both of them give no regard for making this a readable, easily understood story. John never tells us if Jesus preceded or resurrected. We never, we don't know. Isn't it interesting that John just doesn't care? Because that's not the point. And so we don't know what Philip and Andrew's discussion is. That's not the point. Is it, once again, the details that we have and the details that we don't have matter. And so they're really not worried about the factual details to get it right. They're trying to show us something. And we can imagine a 
I've seen, and I'm just going to go back to the text only because you won't believe me if I don't show you. They go to Jesus and say these Greek people are here to see you. So they have now overcome the idea that these people aren't Jewish, and they're like, you got it right. We're saying that they can see Jesus. And they come, and now they're thinking like, this is great. We never wanted this. It's a big deal. The Greeks, non-Jewish people are recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. And so they go to Jesus and say, there are Greeks here. They want to see you. And Jesus answered and says unto them, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, life cannot come. Jesus, are you on LSD? I mean, Jesus, are you high? What in the world? I mean, what kind of answer is that? Can you imagine, like, you literally go to Jesus and ask a very specific question, like, hey, there's some Greeks here who want to see you. And he starts talking about wheat. He starts talking about the Son of Man and the hour and the, the grain falling into the earth. Are you kidding me? Like, that's the weirdest answer ever to a very direct question. And so to understand what the Greek part meant, you have to pay attention to what's happening because imagine this scene and they would have understood the message first based on what Jesus taught them. They would have seen that there was something happening that was deeper. Now, I don't doubt that in that first moment they were going, whoa, and I can imagine like three months worth of potato corn says and going nope like i have no clue so jesus answers by telling a strange story and with this question jesus begins this tension filled tension filled story about wheat and eternal life and he begins it this way by saying uh, he uh, begins it this way by saying the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified that mean? Imagine with me what you might expect Jesus to say next. Because if you're a disciple, remember, they had just seen Jesus. They still think he's going to lead them out in the same way that Alexander the Great did. They're thinking victory and power and might. And so Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And they're like, yes, this is it. I mean, they had been asking him repeatedly, it's time. Four different times in the text of John, John, you find Jesus answering the question, it's time, yet the hour has not come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember the wedding at Cana? Jesus' first pushback to Mary is what? For my hour has not come. Over and over and over. Now, all, so they've heard him saying, the hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come. And now all of a sudden he says, the hour's here. And they're going, oh, oh yeah, it's on. But then he says something very interesting. You see, Jesus explains that his way is a different way altogether. When he explains this glory, it is the way of the Son. The glory is here. Now's the time. And he explains it as a way of descent. He explains it as a way of dying, as a way of giving your power to those that have none and giving your voice to those who are voiceless. You see, we want to see Jesus. That's the cry. I, I, I feel 
that I say you can feel that too is I use that language to say that you can feel that too. Jesus explained that the answer is that we have to be prepared to look for him in the right place. When we look for the glorified Christ, we can't look for him by journeying up. We have to look for him by journeying Richard Rohr writes, one of the best kept secrets and yet hidden in plain sight is that the way up is the way down. Or if you prefer, the way down is the way up. See, Jesus says the Son of Man is now is the hour where the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And in that way, now is the hour in which the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And Jesus replies by saying a really unique thing. He follows this by saying now is the hour that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And then he begins to talk to them about that. Will you give yourself for those who have less? Will you pour yourself out for the poor and the brokenhearted and the oppressed and the voiceless? You see, Jesus makes it absolutely unequivocally clear that the way up is the way down. Could it be that when the Greeks come to Jesus, that there's a a finalizing of dying? I'm trying to keep my voice. Um, but what he shows here, it's like there's this moment. This is the trigger. And, and I find this fascinating because why is it the trigger? You see, Jesus has said the hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come. And he's doing miracles. If I would have thought that there was a moment where Jesus would have said, now's the time, it would have been the Lazarus moment. Like this is the great culmination. It's the last sign in the book of John. It's the seventh sign. resurrection happening and Jesus doesn't say it with that but he comes they come to him and the Greeks are there and he says now this hour has come and I think the reason is because there's something specific you see we want to see Jesus they say and at this moment of love and liberation Jesus explains what his path and the path of all others that follow in his way will look like it's the way of descent He explains the grand reversal. The ones who love their lives lose. The ones who lose their lives gain. See, there's this grand reversal. The way of greatness is in service and humility and in sacrifice. In truth, we must change our very self-image rather than just be told some new things to see or do. It's not just about learning new rules. We're good at learning new rules, especially as Westerners. It's like, give me the rules, I have to follow them. But what he says is it's not about the rules. See, Jesus' people were great at the rules. 613 commandments that they followed that were part of the Old Testament. Or just in general. 613 commandments. That's a few. That's just a few. And so what they would do is they knew the way of commandment, but Jesus said the greatest commandment, love God, love neighbor. 
And so Jesus over and over is enforcing this idea. He's pushing into this idea that now the Greeks are here. So it's expanding. The kingdom is growing. The people that God had always told them uh, that they had understood God to tell them were out are now somehow in. And so Jesus is widening this gospel out. And what he's saying is, in truth, we must change our self-image, not just learn new things to do. See, God is not interested in telling you new rules to make you holy. He's interested in telling you you've always been holy. God is not interested in telling you new rules that tell you that God loves you. He's telling you that he could never not love you. It's not about earning anything. God is enforcing, Jesus is showcasing the idea is that we need a new self-image. And we need a self-image that is belovedness and completely and totally untied and untethered to performance. And so Jesus, in this idea, to be a Christian is to objectively know that we share the same identity as Jesus, enjoying both human and divine. That's what it means to follow him. Sharing, Jesus tells us this. Jesus says this numerous times. He's the firstborn of many brethren. So he's trying to show us that we are one with him as he is one with the Father. He's trying to show us that in the same way that he would demonstrate that he's the son of God and yet the son of man, that we're that way, that there's something sacred and holy to our humanness. Because we're brokenhearted like Jesus did at Passover for us. That's not a moment of weakness. That's a moment of holiness. So Jesus shows us that this is what it means to follow. This realization that someone is living in us and through us is exactly how we plug into a mind larger than our own. The mind of we know in a different way. Although we keep relearning this truth over and over and over again. If you ever feel like that, like I could tell you today, you're beloved, there's nothing you have to do, there's nothing you've ever had to do for God to love you. You are perfectly holy as you are. And yet then tomorrow, right? So I really wish, like if there was in the old Pentecostal days, like you do the prayer line and you lay hands on people and you have touches, guys that have to get out the branches and pray over people, all the weird stuff that we would do, right? And I would hope, like, right there, okay, now I've got it. I'm beloved and I'm holy and God loves me and there's, I don't can make unworthiness. But then tomorrow when I get up. And so the idea, though, is we relearn and relearn and relearn and relearn and relearn and relearn. And we're doing that until it becomes cellular. And the reason we're doing that until it becomes cellular is most of us have spent our whole lives being told that we're not holy. Most of us have spent our whole lives being told that shame is humility. That shame is humility. And God wants you to be humble. And we conflate those two things and God is saying that the very first thing when mankind fell in the garden story, the first thing that we find 
is that the shadowing of your own very world that since the beginning God has been trying to get at that thing God has been trying to get at that thing in us that fights not our action and our rightness of thinking our rightness of believing or our rightness of doing God has been trying to get at our rightness of being the being of who you are is holy the being of who you are is beloved the being of who you are is loved and held and safe and secure and so what Jesus says here is something that's so powerful if you'll understand it because according to the birth and being of the Greeks they were out Jesus says no 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 it's not about them having to become here Jesus is saying because they're alive they were born with the image of God Thomas Merton said in practical order this mostly feels like taking myself, my ego, both its hurts and its importance, which are largely manufactured in my mind, and taking those things left me as they lay by their bedroom. That growing into this identity is largely just taking myself less and less seriously. See, I've been taught that I'm supposed to take it more seriously. Heaven and hell are on the line. It's actually about taking my, because what we're doing is we're recognizing, you know what? I'm not bigger than God. And if God could birth me in goodness and birth me in holiness and birth me in belovedness, what do I think I could do to that end? So, in reality, what I think growth and salvation is all about is our first nature. You see, what I think growth and salvation, growth as a person is all about is our separateness. You see, I was always taught that, um, that we are, until we, ex- I don't want to go too far here, until we accept Jesus, we are separate from God. So Jesus becomes good right so what i actually think the bible explains is that there is a separateness that is psychological i call it psychological estrangement because if god is everywhere how do we ever think we could be separate from everywhere right if god is everywhere and in everything is there any way to really be separate from that No, of course not. And so what I think the idea that Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to cause a sense of liberation from the separate self and cause us to surrender and fall into our first nature, which is what I I, I love this term. I don't know why I thought of this and why this came out in the book, but our foundational holiness. Obvious 
in any shape or form. That is the essential character of divine rescue. Salvation is always pure and totally gift from God's side, living and thinking autonomously, separately, or cut off from such a line or source is what Paul means by being foolish and unspiritual. But in reality, living in connection to the divine, in the vine is what wisdom looks like. It's actually what union looks like. This is why the metaphor of being married is one of unique significance. You see, when I was taught this, I'm going to try to explain this in a way that makes sense and wraps this up. So when you see this metaphor, I was always taught that Jesus says, okay, unless a, 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 a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, life cannot come or fruit cannot come. And in that way, to me, somehow this parable that Jesus gives has always been about fruitfulness. So what I was always taught is that the job of my, my job, my role is to die. And I'm in quotes, of course, but dying to the flesh. Anyone ever heard that? Does that make any Dying to the flesh is the idea that I'm supposed to die to whatever, maybe my desires or whatever that is, my sin nature. And the really interesting thing that as I've studied other denominations and even other religions is everybody has a different idea about, about what we're supposed to die to. So some uh, denominations teach that women need to die to wearing pants. Just joking. But that's the dying of the flesh. Okay, some denominations might teach that the dying means you can't watch anything, uh, any movies that are rated above PG. I don't know why as soon as you put numbers after the two letters, it becomes sin, but it does. Okay, uh, some denominations teach if you leave your Welch's out on the counter too long. That that's something you have to die to. So uh, there's certain words that you have to die to. So if you swing and hit your finger with the hammer and all of a sudden you don't use Christian cuss like shoot. But use real cuss. So that's what, so every, it's weird. So every time I've, you know, done something like that or smacked your, your, um, your elbow, like your funny bone, but it's not funny, um, you've done that thing. And when I say shoot, rather than the other word, I just kind of get, I'm a little more holy. Thank you, Jesus. That's, I'm getting a caricature, but to some degree, that's what we thought dying to the flesh was. Like different versions of that. So I want to go watch a movie, but I'm going to come here and pray instead. I just died to the flesh. Like that's what we thought. But the reality, and so to, to but once again, the, it was still so deeply transactional because the reason for dying to the flesh was because if a seed goes into the ground and dies, fruit can come. So my whole goal is spiritual fruitfulness. So you see how that's still transactional. I'm not dying because I want to give myself in love. I'm dying because I'm supposed to bear fruit. I'm not dying because I'm, I'm giving myself and I want to see Jesus. I'm dying. I'm giving something up 
because of what it then can reward me with. What the, because in some way, God is more pleased and fruitful. And you, you see how this works. Like, unless it's single, unless it goes into the ground and dies, then fruit comes. So I have to, so if you're like me, if there were seasons that felt fruitless, you ever had a fruitless season? It's like, there is nothing happening. Fine, nothing. And my thought was, I just need to do more. So if you're like me, because I'm by nature super, like just weirdly disciplined, I don't even know how to explain it, um, where I just punish myself, I need to diet better or die more. So I need to pray more, I need to fast more, I need to read more scripture. Over and over and over and over, I just do not have time. And I can't do it if I don't have time. Jesus seems to be talking about something else. You see, what I think I find as you read this parable is the Greeks come and they want to keep Jesus around. And the first thing Jesus says is this is what a glorious son of man looks like. This is what my kingdom looks like. It's going to look like you being connected you not being singular or separate because what Jesus says as he explains when a single grain falls he's not talking to an agrarian culture he's talking to a people who know about agriculture and land and what he gives as an answer is in the second part of that little parable, he says, because when a grain of wheat is kept separate, it's singular. But if it goes into the ground, it becomes part of a field. You see, Jesus is not talking about your need to give up Netflix and pray instead. Because Jesus is not, the goal is not fruitfulness. The goal is connectedness. The goal is union. Fruitfulness is not your job. I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you stay connected to the vine, Jesus says you will bear much fruit. Bearing fruit is not your job. Connectedness to everything around you is your job. So he's trying to tell the people, the disciples, the Greeks, everybody who will listen, look, this way of dying is hard, but the real way of dying, it's the way of descent. And the reality is if you put a seed into the ground, and if you if you imagine a planter, if you're using the old style way or walking in the Greeks way. So let's say you have a certain seed in your hand and you're and you're, you're trying you're like I want that seed. I want to plant that seed again. As soon as you do this, good luck. Because it's not separate anymore. It's planted into the earth. It's connected to the bigger part of the harvest. And as part of the bigger field, it is connected to the earth. It's connected to one another. All of those roots begin to grow together. And you can't tell where the roots of one end and the roots of another begin. Because the job is not fruitfulness. The goal is not fruitfulness. What Jesus is talking about is union and connectedness. And to me, that's why in the story of the Greeks, if you also think about the fact that the deed of Jesus actually did the fact of unleavened bread. 
They would have been all talking about unleavened bread, wheat bread story, parable. That's what they would have been teaching on. Jesus posed in that same thing, which is why he happens to talk about a grain of wheat, and says, look, it's not about this. This is about conscious, chosen, and loving union with God. And such union was realized by surrendering to it, never by achieving it. Surrendering to another, participating in another, and divine union are finally and completely the same thing. Once we are aware that we participate in this union, we look out from a reality that is much fuller than a reality of our own making of our separate self. But what happens is, as soon as we start having a hard time, what do we want to do? frustrated because we're separate, right? You know why? Because we struggled with it for so long. So sometimes God is just willing to help we recognize that we're already in union with God. So Paul references something uh, that that this becomes so powerful that this becomes an entire metaphor for the church. Romans 16 says this over and over and over and over and over. Even today when we talk about it being so big started, we say someone's going to go what in church? Ham. Church. So that becomes a metaphor. They got it. You did not. level, much like the seed that goes into the earth, Paul says, you are digging with Christ in God. Digging with Christ in communion with God. The ability to stop the, the real, the real truth going on in us and saying, why is it always me? Why do people hate me? Why does it always go wrong? Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online 
at harvesthouse.live.